0: hey everybody magnus here been a little obsessed with fried chicken lately and i speak here of popeye's chicken i prefer that new orleans style fried chicken more than that kfc trash i mean seriously that stuff is low-grade fucking dog food it, that's what you give to the dog if you don't really like them all that much anyway so yeah popeye's right Thing is, though, their prices kind of suck if you get one of their combo meals. I mean, call me old-fashioned, but I happen to think no three-piece combo meal consisting of fried chicken should cost more than $5, you know? And look, I'll be the first to admit that I'm kind of a cheapskate about these types of things, but I'd like to think that most people agree with me, at least about fast food, you know? That said... A three-piece with chicken legs all around, with red beans and rice and an extra biscuit thrown in. Man, those are some good eats. Oh, and, and speaking of biscuits, another thing that kind of chaps my ass is that Pillsbury flaky layer fuck of bullshit you get from those cans at the supermarket. Dude, I'm like fifth-generation Texan or something, right? My family pretty much came here the day that Texas was open for business. I know from good biscuits. And biscuits are supposed to be biscuits. Not edible fucking post-it pads that can peel off one a fucking time. <laughs> but anyway, not complaining. Just saying I loves me some Popeyes. And right about now, they seem rather attractive since a lot of my usual drive through places have been miserable with a side of fail lately. Not complaining. I'm just saying that their QC is surely moments away from being declared a disaster by the UN General Council or something like that. You know, just experiences that I've been having lately at Taco Bell, at Whataburger, and other places, right? What the fuck happened? But I shall spare you. So, if you can guess, yeah, that means I'm probably going to be having Popeyes for dinner tonight. Mmm, red beans and rice. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please!
1: This is a piece of
2: art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun.
1: What no! to do with bunny his own. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called
2: super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
0: Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented, as always, by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but every eighth episode of this show, I put everything on pause in order to talk about one show in particular, and that show is Smallville, but once upon a time, I used every eighth episode to talk about Star Wars comics. Yes. The old days. Things were different then. Back then, I was on Libsyn and I put together a format of my show that seemed cool to me. Basically, I've got six episodes where I talk about pretty much whatever I want. The seventh episode, back then, was intended for me and Chris Honeywell to talk about the DC Paradox Press line of big books. Things like the Big Book of Urban Legends, the Big Book of Conspiracies, the Big Book of the Unexplained, etc., etc., etc. And as it happens, that series is soon to end because we're running out of big books. Anyway. And then, after all that stuff, the eighth episode would be all about Star Wars. But that ended up changing really for two reasons. First, I realize that I don't have as much to say about Star Wars as I originally thought. And second, I realize that my Star Wars shows might have been a little bit too similar to what the two true freaks do with their monthly Star Wars show. So what I'm saying here is I decided to abandon talking about Star Wars as a dedicated fixture of my show. Instead, I replaced it with a retrospective all about Smallville. Now you guys have all heard this speech a thousand times now so I really hope it's sunk in. I dig Star Wars but I want to talk about a subject that I honestly I just find more interesting and I guess besides all of that like I said doing a a regular Star Wars show was just too close for comfort in terms of what the Two True Freaks month, uh, monthly Star Wars episode is all about. And if you haven't realized that yet, after a thousand friggin' times of me telling this story, I'm um, not really sure what more I can say. But anyway, so I decided to analyze Smallville from beginning to end, top to bottom, front to back, side to side, and everything in between. So that, I guess, is the background for everything. But in terms of the here and now, this episode that you're listening to right now marks the final part of my retrospective for the mighty third season of Smallville. So, to put it another way, we are very close to the end of what you might call Smallville Phase One. In my imagination, Smallville is divided into a couple of different phases, and Phase 1 is comprised of seasons 1 through Mighty 3. And during this era of the show, most storylines were relatively grounded. I mean, yeah, we're talking about a TV show starring a teenage alien from a different planet with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. But I guess that having been said, Smallville, at least up through the end of the Mighty Season 3, has always kept at least one foot in what you might call the real world. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to call Smallville a TV sh- as a TV show realistic up to this point, but at the same time, you just don't see as much comic booky stuff in Smallville as you do in, well, a comic book. But that all begins to change after the mighty season three. It'll become more common for the show to explore fantasy-oriented storylines and concepts once Smallville Phase 2 gets underway. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not going to be a complete stylistic departure from what's come before, but things are never going to really be the same either. Another major thing that's coming soon is a more polished and cinematic style for Smallville. Up to now, Smallville has reliably delivered feature film quality cinematography. The lighting, the color design, and uh, and other things are all first rate. But the thing is, they're going to get even better. I'm not criticizing Smallville's visual style as we've seen it throughout Phase 1. But Phase 2 is a far superior look and visual style. Does that make sense? So, the stories are going to become more fantastic and also the visuals are going to adapt in order to accommodate that stuff. Anyway, but that's the state of things for right now. Now, last time I finished up my comments with episode 19, memorial, And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about the mighty third season of Smallville beginning with episode 20, Talisman, after these messages.
1: think Of podcasts about religion,
3: you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I
2: kick ass for the Lord.
1: Darkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality.
3: But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds.
2: Our primary focus will be on Christianity,
0: because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism.
3: This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds.
2: If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content,
3: or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content—memes and puns mostly. My bad. Dorkness to light. Often irreverent.
0: Rarely
3: sacrilegious. Uh, 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 Feels good. Hello, sweetie.
2: My name is Aaron Moss, aka Head. I love Star Wars, comic books, movies, reading, comedy, and most things geeky. Come join me monthly. Well, mostly monthly, as I talk about the things I like and a few of the things I hate. Where you may ask why I'm at Head Speaks. I can be found on iTunes under Head Speaks and at my website at headspeaks.com and then click on HeadCast. Also, you can find me on Facebook and Google Plus, both under HeadSpeaks. Come, take a listen. this podcast is not endorsed or affiliated by kid and play though that would be cool huh i'll go ahead and let kid and play finish the promo out
3: you're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville.
0: Okay. I'm back now, and I'm continuing my coverage of Smallville's mighty third season, beginning with episode 20, Talisman. Now, the quick summary for Talisman is that a Kawachi kid gets his hands on an enchanted knife that gives him powers. Believing himself to be Naman from the Kowatchee legend, he targets Lionel Luther, whom he believes to be Sagith, and only Clark can shut him down. In other news, Lana receives notice that she's been accepted to the art school in Paris, but was denied financial aid. But, hey, in a town overflowing with mutants and kryptonite, I'm sure Lana can think of something. So, some good continuity going on here. Back in crisis, Pete said he understood and sympathized when it came to parents divorcing. In this episode, It comes out that the reason for that is because his parents are divorcing themselves. There's really nothing that I can say here that isn't going to sound trite, but obviously Pete isn't really all that happy with that bit of news. Deeper themes and implications. Clark and Lex went through some serious shit back in the episode Memoria. Clark especially. And as I said before, this is the first time that Clark was ever personally and bodily violated because of the Luthers. So, Clark's pissed. Lex has tried his dead-level best to keep Clark out of the line of fire, but he keeps popping up as a person of interest by the FBI, Lionel Luthor, Virgil Swan, the Kowachi people, and who knows who else. But he's not telling Lex why that is. He's holding out, and Lex knows it. So Lex is pissed off, too. The conflict and tension here isn't forced. It's completely organic to what's already happened. This much strife's also foreign to Clark and Lex's friendship. Usually, they were the the only person the other one could count on for peace and stability. But that's fading away. Hate to say it, but things aren't going to get much better anytime soon. Other stuff. Lex says that the knife supposedly gives whoever holds it superpowers. And he's clearly willing to consider the possibility that that's true. Now, but back in season one, Lex would have dismissed that out of hand, on sheer principle. Something that crazy was just way too far outside of Lex's sphere of experience. But that was then, this is now. And now, Lex is a lot less empirical, not less rational, you understand, but less dismissive of strange happenings. He's becoming more and more open-minded all the time. And think about that. Think about how many kryptonite accidents and supervillains and other weird shit that Lex has seen by now. A knife that endows somebody with superpowers wouldn't be the most fucked up thing that Lex has ever seen by this point. Lionel's way ahead of him on all that, though. During a conversation with Joseph Willowbrook, Lionel mentions that he's believed in superpowered people for quite a while now. It's just an interesting counterpoint. That's all I'm saying. Now, excuse me while I open up my can of cherry Dr. Pepper here. All right. Mm, good stuff. Anyway... We get some more intrigue about Jonathan and Jarrell when Jonathan somehow miraculously heals Clark after Jeremiah stabs him with the knife. The answer for all this bullshit is coming soon. This is just one of the latest teases, and in fact, I think one of the last teases, now that I think about it. This is one of the final teases that we get before the big reveal. Something else, though, is that a concept is being set up here with Jarell using Jonathan as a sort of vice regent to do things that Jarrell once done. There's something coming way down the line where this same type of model is going to be used with another character, but that's all in the future. For right now, though, a major element of Talisman's whole pitch is that Neman and Sagith are going to start off as friends and then become enemies. Eventually, Naman's going to use the knife to kill Sagith. But if Sagith touches the knife, it'll be vaporized. So, of course, Lex and Lionel touch the knife simultaneously, and then it vaporizes. Seeing as Lionel and Clark were never best buddies in the first place, it should be obvious who Sagith is. But it isn't. I can't say why yet, because that's still for the future. Suffice it to say, though, Clark? In the end, he was right to be confused, wondering which of them might end up being Segeeth. In the last scene of Talisman, Lex presents an alternative scenario to the legend of Naman and Segith, which suggests that Segith is actually the hero of the story. Nobody's ever said so, but I assume this is Brian Azarello's favorite episode of Smallville. Surprise.
1: You know, I've been thinking a lot about this prophecy. I've got a new interpretation. Want to hear it? Sure. Huh? Yeah. naman guy is supposed to come from the stars have the power of 10 men and shoot fire from his eyes right it's just an allegory lex
0: i know
2: but if one person could do all that he would be a formidable enemy He could conquer the world he could become a tyrant if nobody kept him in check So I've been thinking. Anybody who'd be willing to fight him would have to be pretty brave. Clark, did it ever occur to you that maybe the hero of the story
0: is Sagith? There's a wrinkle here, though, that I've been wanting to bring up ever since Skinwalker back in season two. The legend of Naman and Sagith has been fairly descriptive of Naman's powers. As far as I know, it's never outright said that Sagith won't have powers. It's only said that Naman will have them. Now, suppose Naman were to go rogue. It could happen. It's possible. And if it happened, there'd need to be some kind of way of dealing with them. You can't have someone that powerful running around unchecked. I'm going to suggest to you that back in the second season episode, Rosetta, Dr. Walden waltzed into the Kawachi Caves and took superpowers that were actually intended for Sagith to use against Naman. You know, in the worst case scenario. Keep in mind, this is all conjecture on my part, and to explain this any further is going to kind of require me to go into spoiler territory. There's only a few more pieces of the puzzle, but unfortunately they're several seasons away right now. Still, I want you guys to, to just be thinking about how the Kawachi legend of Naman and Sagith is most likely referring to Clark and Lex. They're destined to be enemies. Now, Lex sees Sagith as the hero of the piece, Sagith so would need some kind of way to protect the world from Naman if worse ever truly came to worst and he went rogue. Since the prophecy applies to Clark and Lex, you could view this as Lex would need a way to protect the world from Clark. You know, just in case. And while you're thinking about that, think about this. If Jarrell wanted Clark to take over the world and subjugate all of mankind just for shits and grins... Why would mankind have the tools to resist him? Why would Why would Jor-El give the human race the ability to turn Clark back if they had if they had to? Clearly, there must be more to Jerrell than we know right now. Now, apart from that stuff, Clark's showdown with Jeremiah is one of the most intense battles he's ever fought. And again, if this was the first season. There's every reason to think that Clark might have been killed by Jeremiah, but instead Clark beats Jeremiah senseless with a tree trunk. I shall repeat that. Clark beats Jeremiah senseless with a tree trunk. Again, this is Clark... Perfecting his methods and using his surroundings to his advantage when he faces an opponent who has strength rivaling his own. Clark doesn't let himself get dragged into a pissing contest over who's stronger. He just smacks Jeremiah with a tree trunk. In other words, Clark exploits his familiarity with having and using superpowers by keeping Jeremiah at a distance while at the same time exploiting Jeremiah's lack of experience with powers. In a certain sense, Jeremiah was totally out of his depth once Clark sh- stopped trying to out muscle him and decided to outthink him instead. Now, I should probably mention here that Talisman was directed by John Schneider. I think this is the first time a cast member has ever directed an episode of the show. And on that note, Schneider did pretty well for himself, especially for being a first time director who let's face it, was working from an occasionally kind of weak script. I mention it because actors becoming directors are going to become a bit more of a common thing for Smallville in the future, but at least for right now. I think that's that for Talisman. Takes us to Forsaken, episode 21. Emily Dinsmore has come back for a return engagement by kidnapping Lana, so Clark has to come to the rescue. Some pretty significant plot advancement gets done here. Lionel finds out about Lex's wire with the FBI. The FBI's dropping the case unless Lex can find something incriminating. And if that happens, if they drop the case, Lex is getting handed right back to Metropolis PD. You know, the people who want him on negligent murder charges for all the technicians that Adam killed from Metron Labs. So, yeah, this is bad news all around. Now, Lionel views all this as an abject betrayal on Lex's part. Lionel sees some imaginary distinction between pinning the Metron lab murders on Lex and Lex cutting a deal with the FBI. Lex doesn't see the distinction, though, and for that matter, neither would any sane, rational person. Anyway, deeper themes and implications... This episode starts with both Pete and Lex telling Clark to either lead, follow, or get out of the way when it comes to Lana. Clark decides to lead, so he sets up a meeting with Lana to tell her about his secret, to talk her out of leaving Smallville. He clues Martha in about all that and what his plans are, and notice this. Martha doesn't object. Clark's nearly a senior in high school. He's shut down zillions of supervillains by now. He's protected his secret against some pretty overwhelming odds. So, if Clark's decided Lana's trustworthy, that's good enough for Martha. Once upon a time, it wouldn't have been. But it is now. Just think back to the second season, when, when it came out that Clark had clued Pete in on his secret. Martha wasn't very happy about it. But Clark's word, now... That's enough to convince Martha. It's not enough to convince Jonathan, though. He outright says that letting Lana in on the secret's a very bad move. But, considering that Jonathan's probably still stinging from the events of Legacy, he's not too proud to admit that his judgment is just as flawed as anybody else's. Maybe more so, in fact. Again, I'm not trying to beat this to death, but if this was season one... Or even season two. Jonathan and Martha both would have gone into hysterics about the risks and dangers of telling anybody about Clark's secret. But whether it's recognition of Clark's burgeoning adulthood or doubts about their own judgment, neither of his parents are willing to interfere with his decision. In fact, neither of them even try to talk Clark out of it. It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. In a strange kind of way, Emily and Clark have a lot in common in as much as neither of them want Lana to leave Smallville. Now, very different reasons, it's true, but still, they wouldn't prefer that, or rather they would prefer both of them that Lana stay, stay home, stay in Smallville, but the difference here is that Emily's attachment to Lana is based on a child's way of thinking. It means nothing to Emily to keep Lana in Smallville by force if necessary. And in a way, isn't that kinda, sorta what Clark was planning to do? Clark was gonna tell Lana his secret to talk her out of leaving. Suppose Clark and Lana were trapped in a fiery building and there was no way Clark could get both of them out there without exposing his secret. Letting Lana in on the truth under those circumstances would be a very merciful act. Or hell, take Pete's example. Pete was ready to. He was completely ready to disown Clark and vilify him to Chloe back in the second season episode, Duplicity. Pete truly believed that Clark had stolen the spaceship out of his shed and was then lying about it so that he could profit off it himself. Do you seriously think that Pete uh, Pete and Clark would have been friends after that? And so, because of that, Clark told Pete his secret. Yeah. Nobody's life was at stake, but Clark needed to keep the spaceship stuff under wraps. And if Pete went around blabbing to everybody that he found one and Clark stole it, some percentage of people out there are gonna believe Pete and probably start looking around the Kent farm for the spaceship. Under those circumstances, Clark's protecting himself and preserving his friendship with Pete by coming clean. I mention all of that to say this, to draw a distinction. Nothing like that is the case here with Lana. Clark was willing to tell her his secret, only to keep her from leaving town for a while. There's nothing in jeopardy here. There's no higher purpose behind telling Lana the truth, other than that Clark doesn't want her to go. The comparison is probably uncomfortable enough for Clark, but when Pete shows up on the farm after getting beaten to a bloody pulp by Agent Loader, Clark's got another incentive to keep his mouth shut. Pete didn't crack, and he didn't give up Clark's secret, no matter how many times Loder kicked the shit out of him. But someone else might have. Shit, Lex implies that even he might have squealed about it when he rescues Pete from Loder. Clark ultimately wants to tell Lana his secret for selfish reasons, but telling her the truth under any circumstances could make Lana a target. Now, a week from now, next year, 20 years from now, whenever. Sooner or later, someone may want to find out more about Clark and, and either use Lana to get to Clark or else beat the shit out of her until she tells him the truth. Neither of those scenarios have a happy ending for Lana. And Clark eventually realizes he's not willing to risk Lana's life. He's got to let her go. Also... When Pete drives away from the Kent farm and into the sunset, he's leaving pretty much for good. Now, I don't know all the details here, but what I've heard is that Sam Jones ended up getting crosswise with Goff and Miller. No idea if that's true. For all I know, Sam Jones wanted... He just wanted a change of scene and an opportunity to play other characters. And looking at the record, he didn't really lack work after leaving, uh, after leaving Smallville. But either way, this episode is pretty much the end of Pete on this show. Except for an encore appearance much later on. And we'll get to that eventually. It's no spoiler to say, though, that if he hadn't gotten in trouble with the law, I suspect okay? This is just conjecture on my part, but I think he probably would have been invited back for a guest appearance in Smallville's final season. And again, it's not a spoiler to say that that never happened. My point, though, is that the showrunners might have gotten a kick out of Pete Ross coming back to Smallville one last time during the final season. So, it's just too bad. Anyway... Another interesting thing here is that Lionel stopped by the talent to re, uh, recruit Chloe into the search for Emily. Think about that for a minute. How desperate must Lionel have been to, uh, uh, that he turned to Chloe for help? Again, it's just interesting. When I do these retrospectives, I don't usually talk a whole lot about uh, you know things apart from the writing. But Mark Snow, that is... Smallville's musical composer at this juncture in, in the, the show's run. He devised a this really neat motif for Emily back in Accelerate from the second season. His work here in Forsaken is a lot more developed and more advanced. There's an actual theme to Emily's music. The piano is more prominent and it's a hell of a lot creepier. It just it works for me, that's what I'm saying. I also don't usually talk a whole lot about acting, but Kristen Kruk has a close-up reaction shot when Emily tells Lana that everybody thinks that she's already left and gone off to Paris. Kruk's expression goes from a sort of defensive bravado to hopeless despair very slowly and painfully, and she aches when she realizes what's just happened. It's one thing when an actor does this, this type of thing quickly. But doing it slowly takes talent. Now, I may not be all that big on Lana as a character, but every now and then, Kristen Kruk reminds you that, yes, she is an actress. And she's damned good at what she does. This episode ends with Lionel being arrested for the murder of his parents, but that's probably only a sample. Truth is, There'd probably be charges of two counts of murder in the first degree, conspiracy to commit murder, arson, conspiracy to commit arson, multiple charges of kidnapping, and probably other bullshit that I'm forgetting about. What I'm saying here is that Lionel would have had the book thrown at him. Murder's a big deal, true, but there'd be a lot more on the menu than just that. Now excuse me while I get a sip off my Dr. Pepper here. Alright, so here we go. Episode twenty two Covenant A superpowered girl named Kara comes to Smallville right as Lionel Luther's charged with murder. We finally get the skinny on Jonathan's deal with It Goes like this. Back in Exile, the first the first episode this season. Jarrell gave Jonathan superpowers so that Jonathan could use them to bring Clark back home uh, to Smallville. Now, in exchange for that, Jonathan had to agree to someday give Clark back to Jarrell. I'll be honest. At first, I thought that was a really retarded plot idea. It just didn't add up to me. I didn't think Jarrell would ever offer that kind of deal to Jonathan, but even if he did, I didn't believe that Jonathan would ever accept it. But time has a funny way of changing your perspective on things. What I understand now is that Jonathan made a desperate choice while Jarrell made a strategic choice. Jarrell has a certain agenda for Clark. But while Clark's dosed on red kryptonite and living it up in Metropolis, as he was back in exile, There's no way he'll ever do what Jarell wants him to do. Whatever that might be. When Jonathan went into the Kawachi Caves to bitch Jarell out back in exile, Jarell saw an opportunity there. If Jonathan could drag Clark back home, there'd be a chance that Clark would follow Jarell's instructions later on. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but sooner or later, Jarrell reasoned that he'd get what he wanted. It'd be delayed gratification for Jarrell, no doubts there, but the alternative is possibly losing his son forever. So Jarrell offered the deal. From Jonathan's standpoint, if he could drag Clark back home and reason with him, there'd be a chance they could vanquish Jarrell once and for all later on. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but sooner or later, they'd probably be able to figure something out. May take time to pull it off, but the alternative is possibly losing his son forever. So Jonathan accepted the deal. Jarrell kept his end of the bargain, and obviously he was willing to give Clark a chance to say uh, to say all of his goodbyes to his friends and his family. Except Jonathan didn't keep his part of the deal. But rather than attempt more strong-arm tactics? Jarrell tries a gentler approach. Pushing Clark around didn't exactly work too well back in Season 2, now did it. So, Jarrell tries something new. He gives a human girl named Lindsay Harrison powers and a mission. Recruit Clark to Jarrell's agenda using logic, reason, and, shall we say, feminine wiles. Because you know, Adrian Palicki is a kind of sort of really smoking hot chick. And speaking of this pretend Kara, Jonathan's pretty skeptical about her at first. Which is understandable. I mean, fuck's sake, this is Smallville. People get weird, fucked up superpowers every Tuesday in that town. The fact that uh, Kara has superpowers means exactly jack shit as far as Jonathan's concerned. At the same time, though, Kara knows a bunch of bullshit about Clark that could only come from a limited number of places. She knows the names Kal-El, Jor-El, Krypton, and other bullshit. She also promises Clark that before all said and done, everybody he loves is gonna sell him out. Strike one comes with Jonathan, when his deal with Jor-El comes to light. Clark never would have thought Jonathan was capable of something like this. Promising to give Clark back to Jarrell, even if it was a lie, told for the sake of expediency, is still a major violation of Clark's trust. Strike two comes with Lex, when his room dedicated to the Kent family gets found by Clark thanks to Lionel's timely intervention. Now, Lex had promised Clark that he'd stopped researching his family. Clark obviously interpreted that to mean that Lex had completely dismantled that room and all the research materials in it, but that never happened. And on top of that, it's obvious that Lex is added to his fucked up little collection of oddities. There's a parasite from the season two episode Rush, there's Clark's family tree from Rosetta, and some other new shit. In the end, Clark agrees to testify against Lionel because it's the right thing to do, but at this point the damage is done. Clark and Lex's relationship will never be the same from this point forward. Maybe it seems like Clark's overreacting here, but I don't think he is. Go back and watch that scene. Lex has opportunities to speak. Clark shoots his mouth off a lot, no doubts there, but he gives Lex a chance to reply. Lex attempts, though, to change the subject... He tries to justify his behavior, and he even gets a little defensive and accusatory. But the one thing that Lex never says is he's sorry. And honestly, I think that's all Clark needs. He finally chooses to go with Kara and accept whatever it is that Jarrell's offering. In Clark's view, there's nothing left. He feels betrayed by Jonathan... Lied to by Lex, and abandoned by Lana and Pete. Jonathan tries to intervene and tell Clark that the whole thing's a scam. That chick isn't Kara, and her name's Lindsay Harrison, but guys, it's too little too late. In the end, Clark joins up with Jarrell and gets sucked into the cave wall. Of course, Jarrell threatening to kill Jonathan might have helped Clark's decision there. From there comes an unspeakably badass montage of Lionel settling all family business today. We see Lex getting poisoned, Chloe's safe house getting exploded real good, Clark sucked into some kind of Kryptonian netherworld, Jonathan unconscious on the the cave uh, floor, and Martha finding a symbol burning in a field on the farm. All of this plays out while Lionel's head gets shaved. Now, it's rare for Smallville to end episodes this way. During this entire sequence, there's basically no dialogue. The story's carried entirely by the visuals and the music. But by this point, Smallville's developed a a sophisticated enough visual language to sustain these types of sequences. I mentioned at the start of this retrospective that... Smallville's visual style was more firmly set in stone, beginning with The Mighty Season 3. And what I mean here is that I don't believe something like this could have been done back in Season 1. I, In fact, you know what? I doubt that it could have been done even back in Season 2, but The Mighty Season 3 is the first time that Smallville had more or less perfected its color palettes, its cinematography, costume designs, and other things. To the degree that a sequence like this could have been done in a visually interesting way. The inspiration here obviously comes from The Godfather, where Michael attends the, the baby's baptism at the church while his minions murder the heads of the five families. As I said, I regard this as inspiration rather than a rip-off. Now, this next part's a spoiler, but I'm going to pause here and say that Lionel did not blow up Chloe's safe house. Yes, her safe house blew up, but Lionel didn't cause it. I wouldn't normally throw out a spoiler like that here except number one it's really not too much of a spoiler and number two people seem to only remember this closing sequence rather than the story points that spun out of it. Because of that They have a very wrong impression about later events in the show's run. But anyway, deeper themes and implications. Lionel comes clean with Lex about his liver disease. And Lex doesn't believe him. Lex has been lied to, manipulated, and betrayed too many times now. He's not buying what Lionel's selling. For maybe the first time, Lionel realizes what he's lost with his son. It's a powerful moment, made all the more so by the fact that as far as Lionel knows, this could be the last conversation they ever have with each other. Now, this next bit is, maybe it's more like symbolism, but a few people visit Lionel while he's in prison. During each visit, during either Lex or Clark's close-ups, the prison bars are fuzzy and ill-defined. They can't contain Lex or Clark because they're not meant to contain Lex or Clark. During Lionel's close-ups, the prison bars are sharp and clear in the frame. They're effectively holding and jailing Lionel. But only Lionel. He's the one in prison. The other characters can come and go as they please. I mention all of this to say that you should keep an eye on this for next time because when we start coverage of the dreaded season 4 things are going to be a little bit different but that's for the dreaded season 4 God have mercy for this episode though that's pretty much the end of the mighty season 3 and I've got some thoughts about the mighty season 3 as a whole season 1 suffered from telling mostly micro stories without the benefit of a macro story being told. Each episode had oodles of character development, but sometimes there just wasn't a cohesive vision guiding the larger story. Indeed, there was no larger story. And I outlined perfectly justifiable reasons for that. But those weak spots remain, justifiable or not. Season two tried to tell a larger story, it's true, but the pacing was 10 different kinds of fucked up. On top of that, supporting characters were often sidelined because they had no story of their own to carry. The new writing staff at the time hadn't cracked the code for uh, telling Smallville stories as well as they would later on. The mighty season threes when Al Goff, Miles Miller and the writers took the bull by the horns and made everything count. Almost every character in the opening credits had a story of their own to propel this season. Sometimes more than one story, in fact. The season arc was powerful and also directly personal to Clark. It was a conflict that affected Clark and pitted him directly against both jor and Lionel, the mighty third season's primary antagonists. In fact, Clark was being confronted on two levels. There's the high and mighty interplanetary threat posed by uh, jor But then there's also the more grounded and personal threat of Lionel uncovering his secret. Clark had to deal with both of them and he wasn't always victorious. In fact, you could argue the Mighty Season 3 continues undoing what the first season has established. During the show's first year, Clark's moral judgments were usually right and he was almost always victorious. The second season's where Clark's judgment first started showing cracks. All through the second season, Clark was constantly faced with circumstances where he severely misjudged dangerous situations which ended up putting his friends and family in harm's way. But in the end, Clark usually won. The mighty third season's where all that bottoms out. Clark's judgment is as shaky as ever, and victories are fewer and farther between. Sure, Clark eventually managed to shake Perry White off the trail of his secret, but later seasons are going to imply that Lionel was a lot closer to the truth about Clark than what we're seeing here. On top of that, in spite of Clark's best efforts, Lex ends up suffering a lot in this season. If Clark had made different decisions, or maybe if he'd acted sooner, or for that matter, maybe not acted at all, if he'd done anything other than what he ended up doing in several episodes this season, there are good reasons to believe that Lex would have ended up being better off in the end. Clark tried like hell to save Lex from Lionel this season, but he never really managed it. On top of all that, Clark's foolish choice to trust Lionel back in Memoria placed Clark himself directly in harm's way. As I say, The Mighty Season 3 not only cast doubt on Clark's perspective and judgment calls, it also rarely showed him as the clear winner at the end of each episode. This was totally foreign to everything that Smallville had been up to this point. Sure, Clark's judgments could sometimes be way off base, in previous seasons, but at least he won in the end. But even that was called into question this season. All of these factors make it easy to believe that Clark would initially resist Jarrell's plans for him, but in the end he'd give in because he wouldn't feel like he had any other choice. It's a decision that's completely organic to everything that Clark has been through this season. By and large, The Mighty Season 3 went incredibly smoothly. Now sure, some things maybe could have been handled better. I refer you to basically anything related to Lana this season. And yes, The Mighty Season 3 got pretty fucking dark toward the end. The bodies piled up, and the themes and conflicts dealt with heavier and heavier subject matter with every passing episode, and the back five or six episodes Really could have benefited from a little bit of season one or two's lighthearted and fun approach. As a matter of fact, it's a testament to just how dark The Mighty Season 3 ended up getting. That the homage paid to The Godfather at the end of uh, Covenant, the uh, season finale, is the perfect way to end The Mighty Season 3 because The Godfather is an extremely dark story of a man essentially sacrificing his soul to protect his family. The act of doing so requires him to do some pretty fucking horrific things. By the time of Covenant, some pretty fucking horrific things have happened this season. Children were blackmailed, kidnapped, violated, tortured, and even left for dead in a few cases. In another episode, a mother murdered her own baby. The operating philosophy that Goff and Miller seemed to have for The Dreaded Season 4 was to lighten things up a little bit and uh, and avoid just the crazy amount of darkness that enveloped the mighty Season 3, especially towards the end. Now, we can argue how well the final product of The Dreaded Season 4 really is, but we can't argue that they made the effort to be less dark from here on in. Something else is, We can't even argue that it wasn't totally necessary, because honestly, The Mighty Season 3 got pretty fucking dark and gloomy. Another thing that's not open to debate in all this is that for a lot of years, The Mighty Season 3 was my absolute favorite season of Smallville. I felt like... I felt like it had... I'm trying to think of the best way to... It had a little bit... And at times, even a lot of everything that made Smallville as a TV show awesome. And even though I've got a different favorite season these days, The Mighty Season 3 really holds up. So, Al Goff and Miles Miller have a lot to be proud of when it comes to The Mighty 3rd Season. So anyway, so that's basically it for now. Time for a break, and I'll be right back after these messages.
1: Jeff? Hey, Mike. I'm trailing. Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is. And we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life... And, uh, y- you know what? I-, I just I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we can talk about real life getting in the way. Which it has. But it's, it's just not fair. So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like Season 2 of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman, the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of bailey And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.FortressOfBailey2.com, www.SupermanHomePage.com, or www.SupermanPodcastNetwork.com.
2: organization operating behind the scenes Task Force X
3: Task Force X is an off the books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release serving as expendable agents for impossible missions succeed and I'll shave time off your sentences if we don't you'll be dead any other stupid questions
2: The Suicide Squad, ran by Amanda
3: Waller. I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces.
2: And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics' Suicide Squad and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Head Speaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X. And under Headcasts over at Head Speaks... We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X, check it out, or you'll answer to the wall.
3: Nobody screws the wall!
1: Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as the Hammer Podcasts and the Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. These shows are all about the live action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them
3: Legends of the
1: Superheroes. In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like Batman, Wonder Woman. Dr.
2: David Banner
1: And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as Swamp Thing Captain William Buck Rogers And many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at 2TrueFreaks.com
0: Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus, at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know you can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with De Manzacor of Milan, Italy.